and then stand back up. <laughs> Y'all come on in. We're about to start worship. Welcome to Northside, coming in and doing fellowship with us to our Lord Jesus Christ, for he is worthy. Y'all please stand. Jesus, 
all because of Jesus. I got a new song we're about to do. We have not done in church before. Uh, but it's a declaration about what Christ has done for mankind, everybody. He did it for all. Now the question is, have you repented of your sin and accepted the gift of the blood of Christ that he gave for you so you can have eternal life? That's what this song is about. If you do not know him, I pray that the Spirit will open your heart and let you see what he's done for you. Left behind, heaven's throne to build. 
Amen. Amen. Colossians 1 verse 13 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Amen. Amen. Well, welcome to Northside Baptist Church. We're glad that you're here to worship with us. While you're standing, go ahead and take a moment and welcome those around you. All right, if you will return to your seats, please, you may be seated. <clears throat> While you're returning to your seats, let me just say once again, good morning and welcome to Northside. We are thankful that you're here to worship with us. Uh, if this is your first time, you are our guest, our visitor, and we're thrilled that you chose to come worship with us. Um, thankful that the Lord brought you here. We believe that the Lord is always guiding our steps, and so you're here for a reason, and so we're thankful that you're here. If this is your first time, we would appreciate if you would let us know that. There's a couple ways that you can do that. There's a QR code um, in the bulletin. You can just scan that, fill out just a little bit of information about yourself, or we have some connection cards out there. Um, if you would just do that, we'd appreciate that. Just want to know how we can pray for you, serve you, love on you any way uh, that we can. Well, it is good to be home. Um, we had an incredible, incredible time um, in Ecuador. I know you're anxious to hear about our trip, and you will hear about that trip. You're just going to have to wait several weeks. Uh, the last Sunday in July, I believe it's July 30th, that morning, um, we're going to worship like normal, but then you're going to hear from each of the seven of us that went to Ecuador, uh, share about our time, how the Lord worked, and then that afternoon is our church picnic at Rockridge. And so we always, we fellowship, we swim, we eat, and then after we eat, we have a time of worship, and then usually I'll share devotion. What we're going to do that night is we're going to have a Q&A. So obviously on a Sunday morning, we're limited in, in what we can share with you, and we may share something, and you may have a follow-up question. You want to know more about the area where we serve, what the Lord did, are we going back? 
And so that night we'll have a Q&A where we can get into some stuff maybe in more depth. So um, we thankfully had a couple young ladies on the trip who love to take pictures and video. And so we will have a video for you on that Sunday morning um, that will kind of show you what we did. Um, and so we had an incredible time. I think we are all tired. Um, I know I'm tired. Uh, having a red eye uh, was, was difficult. So I told Landon this morning, I may fall asleep while I preach. Um, I don't think that'll happen, but I am tired. So I'd appreciate if you would just pray uh, that I would stay awake and for energy and strength. Because um, when you don't sleep for 24 straight hours, uh, you feel that, and it takes you a couple days to recover from that. So, um, but it is an incredible, it was an incredible trip, and can't wait to share that with you. All right, our praying the scripture this morning is actually on the front cover of your bulletin. It is Psalm 51:2, um, and it says, "Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin." So we just sang about the blood of Jesus Christ. Um, so right now what I want you to do is I want, to, I want you to take just a minute or two in, in the quietness of your heart between you and the Lord, and I want you to go before him, and if there is any sin in your heart that needs to be confessed, then I want you to do that right now. And if maybe on your way here you confess those sins, then maybe there's a loved one in your life who's living in sin and you just want to go on behalf of them and intercede on behalf of them that they will repent and turn to the Lord and to pray for the blood of Jesus to cleanse them as they turn to Jesus. So do that right where you are, in the quietness of your heart, and in the quietness of this auditorium, and then I will pray for us, and then we'll worship some more. So go to the Lord in prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, this morning as we gather, we gather in hope. We gather with joy. We can know the peace that passes all understanding because of the blood of Jesus Christ that was applied to our life. Because Jesus, you aren't dead. You are not still on the cross you are not in a tomb. You are alive. Therefore, all that you said you would do has come to pass. You are who you said you are. Father, we recognize that there is sin this morning that we need to confess. This morning, maybe as we sit here, we are feeling the heaviness of guilt and shame. Maybe some are trying to hide it, trying to deny it, trying to suppress it. Jesus, only you can cleanse us from it. So we confess that sin to you right now, whatever that sin may be. We just run to you. Your mercies are new every morning. There is new grace and new mercy for us today. 
because we just sung about we are sons and daughters of the King. So we rest in that. Father, we are told to confess our sins and that if we confess them, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So Father, in this moment, we confess, we know you will cleanse, and Father, we pray that we would walk in righteousness, walk in obedience to the God who loved us and gave his son for us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, would you stand? Let's continue to worship together.
Amen. Amen. Thank you, choir. Aren't you thankful that we have a God who is able? Amen. All right, at this time, our three and four-year-olds are going to make their way to Children's Church. Kindergarten through second grade, you remain in here this morning. But our three and four-year-olds, you may make your way to Children's Church. Everyone else, if you'll take your copy of God's Word, and I pray that you have a copy of God's Word, I want you to follow along and turn to Esther chapter 2. Esther chapter 2. As we work our way through Esther, I am preaching this as if you have never heard or read the story of Esther. For most of you, you're very familiar with the story, but the reality is more and more people today are growing up in homes where maybe they didn't grow up in a Christian home, they didn't grow up hearing the Bible stories, so you're finding more and more people don't really know a lot of these stories, particularly in the Old Testament, so maybe you are not familiar with the story of Esther. So we are Esther chapter 2. The back of the bulletin says verses 1 through 8. That's a typo. It's actually through verse 18. The missionary in Ecuador, Chris Yancey, on the way to church on Sunday, Pastor Gary preached and did a phenomenal job bringing God's Word, said to me, Aaron, you're a 30-minute sermon kind of guy, right? I said, I try to stick to 30 minutes. When I practiced it, it was over 30 minutes. So it's probably going to go over 30 minutes, so I'm not a 30-minute sermon guy today, but typically I am. So Esther chapter 2, verses 1 through 18, David Strain. And his sermon on Esther chapter 2 writes this. Esther chapter 2 is the Bible's Cinderella story. It is a romantic drama of which every Disney princess would be proud. It features a beauty pageant in which the church girl wins the day and depresses everyone with her winning smile. What an example Esther is for little girls everywhere. Do you really believe that the story of Esther is about that. Because if you do, you are badly mistaken. And David doesn't believe that. He's just trying to get your attention because he goes on to say, this interpretation of Esther is one of the worst abuses of Scripture perpetrated by well-meaning contemporary Bible readers all over the place. And then he says this, Esther chapter 2, instead of offering us an example to follow, invites us to face the reality of life in which women are often objectified and made victims, where men can be predatory, and where at least for some, fear is often more powerful than faith. Esther 2 is a dark and uncomfortable tale of abduction, even of abuse, and yet it is here Amidst all of the moral ambiguities and the shocking abuses that dog Esther's steps, that we are invited to trace the footprints of the sovereign God, who is working in and through and despite the sin and suffering that we find here, for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to work through verses 1 through 18. And when we finish... We're halfway done with the sermon, just FYI. It's going to take us a while to work through these verses. Um, I'm not going to comment on everything. I can't. 
We're going to work through this. Typically what I do is we stand, we read all of the verses, then we unpack them. We're covering 18 verses. So I'm not going to have you stand. I'm not going to read them all. We're going to go verse by verse, section by section, make some comments, help you to understand what's going on, and then I've got two points of application. So here we go. Esther chapter 2, verse 1. After these things, comma, let's stop there. After these things, where are we? Well, this is four years after chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 3 says we are, it's the third year of King Ahasuerus' reign. In chapter 2, verse 16, we're now in the seventh year of his reign. So this is about four years after chapter 1. Where are we in the story? Quick recap. King Ahasuerus is enthroned. He's the king of Persia. His wife, Queen Vashti, has been dethroned. She is no longer the queen. There is no queen. It is vacant. And what we don't know from Esther, but what we know from history, is in this period between chapter 1 and chapter 2, King Ahasuerus has been defeated by the Greeks. It was a humiliating loss. No doubt, he's humiliated, he's discouraged, he's down, maybe depressed. And it's after these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. He remembers that he had banished her. This banishment was an irrevocable <clears throat> decree. He could not legally restore her, according to Persian law. She's out. She can't come back. The men must notice he's down, discouraged. So verse 2, Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. This is like the first episode ever of The Bachelor or The Bachelorette. And I can't believe that show is still on, if it's still on. I don't know how many seasons they've had, right? But the purpose here, the plan, is they're going to bring all of these women. They're, some say 400 women are brought in to try to win the heart of the king. And we're going to talk a little bit about what that looks like, right? Now, there's qualifications. There's three qualifications. They let the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins. Now, virgins there could mean they've never been with a man, or it could mean they were of marriageable age. And when you think about what's taking place here for the first time in your life, it may have paid off to be ugly and old. Because you're going to see what happens to these young, beautiful virgins. Their life will never be the same as a result of this plan that they're about to do. Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. Let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the, here's the qualifications again, beautiful young virgins to the harem and Susa of the citadel, under custody of Haggai, he's the one in charge of this, the king's eunuch who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them. Let the young woman who pleases the king, who pleases the king, I know we got kids in the room, that means you're going to get a one-night stand and you get to please the king sexually. I mean, I know this isn't a story you're probably teaching five-year-olds in Sunday school a lot of the time, but this is what's going on here. This is what it means. And that person who pleases the king will be queen instead of Vashti, displeased the king, and he did so. Just quick comment. You need to understand that these women who were taken into the harem, they didn't have a choice. Some of them maybe would have volunteered, 
Maybe they didn't like their home life and they thought, hey, this would be a better life for me. And so maybe they volunteered, but you were taken. It didn't matter if you wanted to go or not. You were forced. This is the kind of king Ahasuerus is, where he's yanking these beautiful young women out of their home. Their lives will never be the same, all for a one-night stand. But here's the deal. He didn't just treat women this way. King Herodotus, a Greek historian, writes that every year this king would take 500 boys, he'd gather them, he'd castrate them so they would serve as eunuchs in the Persian court. This is not the kind of guy you want to be. And so they've got this plan in place. Now we're introduced to Mordecai and Esther. Now there was a Jew, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Yer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. All of that is significant, and we're going to circle back to that next week when Mordecai takes front and center stage. We're not going to look at Mordecai really this morning, but we're introduced to Mordecai, and we see not only that he was a Jew, the people of God, but he was also an exile, verse 6, who'd been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. So Mordecai is a Jew. He's in exile. We'll come back to him next week. Verse 7, he was bringing up, now we're introduced to the main character of the story. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter, Esther. That is her Persian name. Hadassah is her Hebrew name. We'll circle back to that in a few minutes. Esther is an orphan. Her mother and her father have died. She is raised by Mordecai, who is her cousin. And Esther happens to be beautiful. That's preparing you for what's about to happen. Esther is beautiful, lovely, to look at. In other words, she meets the qualifications that the king has set forth. Verse 8, so when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. So she is taken into the palace, and the young woman pleased him and won his favor. A couple things in these verses. Number one, Esther wins the favor of Haggai. She advances to the best place in the harem, which is the place where these women would have lived. So here's where we are. Esther has been taken away from Mordecai, placed within the harem, where she begins to win the favor of people, and she begins to advance. Now question, how does Esther feel about all of this? Wouldn't you like to know? Thank you. Somebody said yes. You would like to know. Well, here's the deal. I don't know. And you don't either. Did she hate it? Did Mordecai try to hide her? Did Mordecai stand at the door saying, no, you can't have her? No clue. Was Esther concerned? Did she have questions? Did Esther say, sign me up? We have no clue. I doubt she said, sign me up, but we have no clue. The author doesn't tell us how Esther thinks about this. Now, I mentioned a couple weeks ago 
that one way that people can preach God's word is through an exemplary style of preaching. An exemplary style of preaching means every character, you look to them as an example, good or bad, and you try to figure out, hey, let's be like this person, let's not be like this person, and that's how you preach the passage of Scripture. Now, if you're preaching from an exemplary style of preaching, here's what you have to do. You have to render judgments. If we're preaching Esther as an example, then you have to say, was she a good example here or a bad example here? Did she put up a fight? Did she try to resist the man to say, no, I'm not going? Did she willingly go? And if you try to preach Esther that way, you will get frustrated because we don't know how she felt. Here's what we do know. Regardless of how she felt, she's at the mercy of a ruthless pagan king. And she doesn't have a choice where she is, but she's there. And in the way she begins to live her life, she begins to win the favor of this individual Haggai. Verse 9, and the young woman pleased him and won his favor. He quickly provided her, right, with the cosmetics, her portion of food, with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Verse 10, Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. Here's another passage of Scripture where we may struggle. Esther's a Jew. It's who she is. But Mordecai is telling her, conceal it. Hide it. He doesn't tell her to lie about it. He just tells her to conceal it. You're like, Mordecai, why would you, in essence, try to tell your daughter that you're raising to like deny who she is at her core? Well, as you fast forward a little bit, it's clear that Mordecai must understand for her to go in and just openly declare, I'm a Jew in the palace would not be in her best interest. And then the author adds this, just in case you and I start to get on Mordecai a little bit too much. And every day, Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Look, Mordecai's not in charge. This is the king's domain. But Mordecai does what he can. And every day, he's in front of that gate making sure Esther is doing all right. We continue in the story. Verse 12, we're going to pick up the pace here. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go into the king, Ahasuerus. All right, to go into the king has two meanings. One, it means your number's up, you're going into the king's palace, his room. But also in scripture, to go in is this idea of intimacy, of sexual intimacy. Folks, this is a one-night stand. They are prepared for one year and you have one night with the king to please him any way you can to win his favor. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go into the king Ahasuerus after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil and myrrh, six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in. And in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. Now, here's what you would think just in reading this. These women went in. You had a one-night stand. You were done. You got to go home. That is not how it worked. 
Commentaries tell us, based upon this culture and what they did, you prepared, you were taken from your mom and dad, taken from your home, you prepared for one night. After that night, you went to a second harem where you stayed the rest of your life. You never went back home, and you never got married. That's what the king did to hundreds of women, all for his own pleasure and satisfaction. They didn't ask for this. They didn't, most of them probably didn't sign up for this. Now, maybe some of them did. Maybe some of them said, hey, at least a, a year surrounded by luxury and a life surrounded by luxury is better than what I had at home. But for most of them, right, their lives would never be the same again. Verses 15 through 18. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, right, Esther's number is called. She doesn't have a choice in this. She asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now, Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. Look, Scripture doesn't say this. There's so much emphasis here upon the outward beauty but I have to believe not only did Esther win with the outward beauty, but there was something different about her within. Like there was an inward beauty. She was living as faithful as she could. The Lord was blessing that. She was finding favor in everybody's eyes. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tabeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. You come to verse 17. Esther is now the queen. She is married to Ahasuerus. She's living in the palace. Verse 18. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Warren Wearsby writes, It's likely that taxes were canceled, servants set free, and workers given a vacation from their jobs. Why? Because Ahasuerus wanted everybody to feel good about his new queen. When you come to the end of verse 18, that's where you are in the story. Esther has gone from her home with Mordecai, who's raising her, to now she is the queen of Persia, and King Ahasuerus is the king. Now, let's just think about a couple things here. That's the story. But how do, we, how do we apply that? How do we think about that in our own life and as we think about Esther? So here's the first thing I want you to notice. Number one, we need to realize that we live in a real world where being faithful to God is a must, but it is not always easy. You and I need to realize that we live in a real world where being faithful to God is a must, but it is not always easy. How were Esther and Mordecai, Jews, to live in a land that was not theirs? They are Jews taken as exiles, captives, put in a land that is not theirs. Jews living in Persia. Esther lives in two worlds. Several authors, commentaries point out that Esther's two names, 
actually might suggest the challenge facing the people of God in exile. To which world does Esther really belong? She is Hadassah, child of the covenant, child of the promise, a child of God, a citizen of God's kingdom. And yet she is Esther, the pretty Persian girl, about to be swept up into a life she did not choose. This is where Esther is. How do these two lives relate to one another? I like the way David Strain asked the question. How do we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? How do we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? Esther lived in two worlds. She was a Jewish woman and a Persian queen. And as her life unfolds, there will come a day when Esther has to choose who she will be. In chapter 2, she's the Persian queen concealing her Jewish identity. But a day will come when she has to choose, this is who I am. But until that point, what is she doing? Now listen, there are some commentaries you read, man, they are hard on Esther, but hard on the girl. I'm not going to take that approach. I think it would be easy to beat up on Esther, but we do have to be honest. Esther, as long as she is concealing her Jewish identity, is compromising her faith in who she is. She's compromising it. She's not sticking out. The Jews, if they were living out the commandments that God sets out for them, they're going to stick out. It's by nature. God's taking them into the promised land, and he's saying, you are to be different from all the other nations. You aren't to look like them. You're to stick out. She's not sticking out. She's blending in. She would have broken dietary laws. Because if she was following the dietary laws of God's covenant, people would have known, you're eating different. But you're eating like the Jews eat. Are you a Jew? They would have known. She's obviously violating the Sabbath commandments. Because if she was following them, they would have been, wait, this is what Jews do. You're living like a Jew. You must be a Jew. She certainly breaks the sexual laws, sleeping with an uncircumcised Gentile man. So it would be easy for us to beat up on Esther. But you know what? Would you confess that sometimes in your life it's easier to blend in than to stick out? It's easier to go with the flow? To kind of blend in with the culture, then to stand out and be different from the culture. See, here's the reality this morning. We are living in two worlds. You live in America, but you're also a citizen of the kingdom of God if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. The picture that was up there while the choir sang, I think, emphasizes that. You are a citizen of America. We have our independence that we're celebrating this week. There is no greater country on planet Earth to live in. When you go to other countries like Ecuador, you may pick up on one or two things that you're like, man, the simplicity of it, the, the, we were, the first night at the hotel we were in, man, the people there were just eager to wait on you and help you and with a smile, like that's customer service. America needs some more of that, right? I mean, there's things that you could, like, I wish we could take this and bring it over here, but hear me, there is no place like America. 
Like you're eager to get home. Like you want to be home. So you are a citizen of this country. But you're also a citizen of the kingdom of God. And the temptation, and I talked about this several weeks ago, the temptation for us as we seek to figure out these two worlds is either to assimilate or to isolate. To assimilate, where we walk away from what we believe the Bible says and we become like the culture, we assimilate with them, or to isolate like the Amish do and others do. They completely separate themselves from society, right? No outward cultural influences, but if you completely cut yourself off, then you can't witness to people. You can't be the light if you're away from everybody. And those are extremes. So how are we in the world but not of the world? Let me just say this. When it comes to the two worlds, are you an American who happens to be a child of God? Or are you a child of God who by God's grace happens to live in America? Like when you see the American flag and the Bible and the cross, right now, you can pledge allegiance to both. For most of my life, for your life, you've been able to pledge allegiance to both. But a day may come where you, brothers and sisters, got to choose. When you got to choose, where's your allegiance? Like I die for my country. But if you're taking my freedoms away, ultimately my allegiance is with Jesus. That's where my allegiance lies. And so where are you? And so listen, I quote her, I think, every week because she's worth quoting. Karen Jobes writes, We should each strive to live in obedience to our Lord. And I appreciate her honesty here. But it is not always clear what that means in the nitty-gritty details of daily life in the 21st century. Like We want to be obedient, but when you get down to the nitty-gritty, now a lot of choices is crystal clear. This is what God will want you to do. His word says this, but when you get down to the nitty-gritty, like what does it look like to be obedient in the 21st century? And then she says this, regardless of whether they always knew, talking about Esther and Mordecai, regardless of whether they always knew what the right choice was or whether they had the best of motives, God was working through even their imperfect decisions and actions to fulfill his perfect purposes. Other than Jesus, even the godliest people of the Bible were flawed, often confused, and sometimes outright disobedient. And we are no different from them. Yet our gracious God omnipotently works his perfect plan through them and through us. Let me quickly say this. Esther is in a position that she is not responsible for. She's not responsible for where she was. The king had the authority. She had to do what the dictator says. That's why I'm thankful we don't live in a country with a dictator because you have no voice, you have no rights. She had no rights here. She didn't have a choice. But Esther is responsible to live faithfully to God, to be obedient to God, even in a place where she has no responsibility. And so this morning, maybe you are in a place that you are not responsible for. Maybe you've just lost your job, or you heard you're about to lose your job. But did you all see how many people ESPN laid off yesterday? And the, the day before, I mean, those people have been with that company for years. They didn't have a say-so in that. Or maybe you're in a position where your spouse has walked out on you, has stopped loving you. What are you to do in that? 
Or maybe you're in a place where you have a child who's living in sin. They're being rebellious and they're causing pain and dissension in your household. And you're trying to look at your own heart to say, man, where did I go wrong? But the reality is this is how they're choosing to live. Or maybe you've been diagnosed with cancer or another illness and you didn't ask for that. You're not responsible for that. This is the hand you've been dealt. So what are you to do in the midst of that? You live faithfully. You live faithfully, just like Joseph lived faithfully, just like Esther is going to live faithfully. You seek to follow Jesus. Now, the reality is some of you are in a situation that you are fully responsible for, and you're dealing with the consequences of that. You're feeling that shame. You're feeling that guilt. So what do you do? Well, that's the second point, and that is this. Keep hanging on because this is important. Only Jesus Christ can cleanse us of our guilt and shame. I wonder, and I would love to know, did Esther, as she gets older, look back upon the events of chapter 2 and feel guilt and shame and regret? Or did she look back upon her life with a clear conscience? I don't know the answer to that. As you think about your morning or yesterday or last week or last month or five years ago, do you look back with guilt and shame and regret or with a clear conscience so here's what we have a tendency to do and we got to be careful that we don't do it with esther we have a tendency to judge others very quickly like we just judge them look down upon them like why didn't esther fight why didn't they resist the man like why didn't they stand up i mean mordecai could have done something right why didn't they do that or the other temptation is we blame other people And we develop this victim mentality where we're victims all the time. Now, Esther's a victim. Sometimes there are just simply victims. And other times, people cry wolf and they're a victim and everything. But here's what I want to challenge you to do. Are you examining your own heart with that same level of scrutiny? The level that you judge people or blame people, do you turn that inwardly and scrutinize your own heart with that same level of intensity. And what happens when you do that? And you find, man, God, I failed you again. Man, God, I blew it again today, Lord, I'm sorry. Or maybe you just outright sinned and rebelled against God. What are you to do? I don't know the motives of Esther. I don't know her heart. I know my heart. And you ought to know your heart. And when you realize you're guilty and you're filled with shame and you're filled with regret because you have sinned, what do you do? There is only one answer, and that is to repent. You are to repent. Landon Down writes, and please hear this because this is so important. We can have regret and we can have remorse, but we do not have repentance until we acknowledge our responsibility and what is wrong. Regret and remorse is not repentance. Repentance is, Lord, this isn't on anybody else. This is on me. I take full responsibility for this. I have sinned against you. And hear me, those who don't know Jesus Christ, apart from Jesus Christ, are incapable of repenting and avoiding their guilt. What they do with their guilt and their shame is they ignore it. They hide it. They try to subdue it. They suppress it. But they can't remove it. 
all of us, every single one of us in this room, those of you watching online, whether you're in America or you're in Ecuador, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are guilty, we are condemned. And there is only one person who can remove your guilt and your shame, and his name is Jesus Christ. Amen? Only Jesus. The blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse us. The resurrection of Jesus Christ gives us life and reconciles us to God the Father. So here's the reality this morning. This morning and every morning and all day long, you need Jesus. Esther needs Jesus. Right? Jesus will come and he will save a people from their sins. So here's the question as we land the plane. How do you do this? Like as a follower of Jesus Christ, and that's where your allegiance lies, how do you live in a fallen, sinful world? How do you do it when you find yourself in a position you're not responsible for? That other people, because of their sin or their choices, have brought this upon you. What do you do? How do you survive day after day after day? Quickly, quickly, I want to walk through a couple verses in Lamentations. Because as as I was reading one morning while in Ecuador, the Lord laid this upon my heart, and I just jotted down five things, and I just want to share this with you. So how do you do it? The steadfast love of the Lord, this is Lamentations 3.22, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, his mercy never comes to an end. Number one, here's what you do. You run every day to the mercy of God. Every day. God's mercies are new. Every morning when you wake up, God doesn't say, hey, you exhausted your mercy yesterday. Hallelujah, he says, you need more mercy, I've got more mercy. You need grace, I've got more grace. So when you're in that situation, you've blown it, you failed, you quickly run to the mercy and the grace of our God. Number two, he says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Number two, you trust in the love and the faithfulness of God. Every day remind yourself that you are loved by the creator of the universe. That no matter what situation you find yourself in, remind yourself, God loves me. You remind yourself that he is faithful. Your salvation isn't up to your faithfulness. Your hope is in Christ and his faithfulness and his righteousness. So wherever you find yourself, however hard it may be, you keep running back to the faithfulness of God, the love of God. Number three, put your hope in God. Verse 24, the Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. That's where your hope is, not in your bank account, not in the stock market, not in your job, not in your education, not in a relationship, not in a spouse, not in your kids, not in a country. It's in Jesus. And when you forget that, you will drift far away from the Lord. So where's your hope? Where's your life at right now? Number four, this can be so hard. Wait for him. Verse 25, the Lord is good to those who wait for him. I know I've gone way past my 30 minutes here, but bear with me. One of the afternoons that we were in Ecuador, we had a chance to sit down with Steve and Carol Thompson, who are the founders of Camp Chicalca, and we got to hear their testimony. We got to hear their story, and I bet three times as he began to talk about the camp and how it came about, he shared at least three times where God would place a dream or a vision in his heart for a camp, for a seminary, and he would say, yes, yes, Lord, I'm willing to go after this. But the Lord would say, the answer is yes, but not now. 
Yes, but not now. Yes, you'll get a camp, but not now. Yes, you'll get a seminary, but not now. And in that, he was reminding us that so many times we have to wait on the Lord. We have to wait on the Lord. Warren Wearsby writes, God is never surprised by circumstances or at a loss for prepared servants. Young folks, hear me. Every time you run ahead of God, every time you decide, I'm not waiting on God, I'm going to go do this myself, it will end either in disappointment or disaster. Every single time. Wait for the Lord. His timing is best. He knows what he's doing. Wait for him. And lastly, seek after him. Verse 25, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. Seek after the Lord. I can't imagine how confused Esther must have been in that moment. Like her life would never be the same. She had no clue what God was about to do. She found herself in a situation she was not responsible for. And maybe that's where you are this morning. You find yourself in a place. Things have happened to you in your past, maybe presently, that you do not understand. Will you trust in the Lord that He has a plan, that He's working all things together for good? Will you run to His mercy? Will you put your trust in Him? Will you wait for Him? Will you hope in Him? Will you seek after Him? Because He's calling. He's calling to each of us, wanting us to be faithful as followers of Jesus Christ living in this country, seeking His glory, knowing that what God does will be for our good. Will you trust Him? Just close your eyes and bow your head. Father, right now, you know the hearts of every single person in this room from the youngest to the oldest. Lord, you know our present situation. You know those, Father, who have come to trust you in their present situation. You know the hearts of those who are seeking to change their present situation or praying, God, that you would change your will or seeking to run ahead of you ignoring your will. God, you know our hearts. You know if we have fully assimilated with the current culture, you know if we're still resisting the culture, holding fast to you, Jesus. You know where we are. You know our sin. You know our guilt, our shame. You know what keeps us up at night. You know what causes us the most pain and heartache. Now, some people in this room have been through some pretty awful, rotten things. And they've wrestled with those things. And I pray they've come to a point, God, where they've just trusted you where their faith is firmly in you, trusting that you are the God who is weaving all things together for your good, for your glory and our good. Father, for some people in this room, they're about to walk through some pretty difficult stuff. Maybe they know it's coming. Maybe they're going to find out tomorrow, next week, next month. God, I pray today's message would prepare their hearts. Sometimes it's not always easy. But God, you are always faithful. Wherever we find ourselves, you're faithful. And so as we sing this final song, the emphasis this morning in our worship has been on you, Jesus. As we sing one more time about you, just turn our hearts and our minds and our affections to you, Christ, as we trust in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? Let's continue to worship together. Mm -hmm.
seated. You alone are God, and I surrender to your way. I pray in light of our worship this morning, in light of the message, in light of that song, that this morning you would surrender. If you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that you would confess Him as Lord and Savior of your life, that you would turn to Him. And if you're a follower of Christ, that in every area you would just surrender to His ways for His glory and our good. All right, just a couple announcements um, before we uh, conclude our service. Uh, we have an in-person finance team meeting at the church this Wednesday at 6.30, so if you're, if you're on the finance team, be here for that. we got to prep the budget for next year. Um, we have a, the same opportunity to finish up some work with CHOA, so there's an announcement about there. That's this Saturday, July 8th. Um, 8 a.m. The address is in there. They started the work a couple weeks ago, but they got to finish it. So if you're able, please come serve. Be able to love on this uh, this lady, this individual. Uh, share the love of Christ with her. All right, Vacation Bible School. Several announcements. I'm going to go through them quickly. So pay attention, listen up, because they are important. Number one, if you have not registered, volunteer or kid, you need to do that. You can do that online. Um, by visiting the website. The QR code's not in here, so you got to visit the website. Number two, we still need help in a couple ways. On Sunday night, we do our family night. We have inflatables. We need people to sign up to man those inflatables so the same people don't have to do it the whole night. That sign-up sheet is at the Connect Boards. If you're going to be here and you're willing to stand there for a little bit, watch the kids. Please sign up for that. This next one is very important. Um, our adult helpers have a break every night for snacks, and they go to the snack room. And to go to the snack room, you need snacks. That'd be helpful. You walked in, there were snacks. There's a sign-up sheet for that, and there's a lot of empty places where names could go like, hey, I'm going to bring snacks so our workers can eat. So please, before you leave, if you're not helping with Bible school, even if you are, but if you're not and you say, man, how can I help? Bring some snacks. So go sign up for that. So you're going to bring what? Snacks so people like me can eat. So thank you for bringing snacks. So hopefully that sign-up sheet will be full in about 10 minutes. All right, one more announcement. Chris is going to make an announcement about Upward because that's about to kick off. Bill, when he's done, if you'll come close us with a word of prayer. So uh, Upward evaluations, and our registration is open, open yesterday, and we open for the month of July. Uh, if you uh, have a kid who wants to participate, there's a registration for that. If you want to volunteer, there's a registration for that. Um, if you are new to Northside in the past year, uh, Upward is probably our largest church-wide uh, evangelism opportunity we have. Uh, on any given Saturday, we'll have 400 people out here who are 
mostly unchurched, and you have a chance to develop a relationship with them and share the gospel with them. Uh, we need coaches, we need assistant coaches, we need referees. If you're willing to sign up for any of that, please do so. Uh, evaluations take place at the beginning of August. Practice to start at the end of August. Games start at the 1st of September and run through the 1st of November. So it's, it's a great time out there on the field. So if you've never participated in Upward, I encourage you to sign up for that. Uh, the link should have been shared with you online, but hope to see you on the field. Let's pray. God, thank you for another Sunday. We thank you for bringing our family back from Ecuador. We thank you that we're in a country where we can choose to follow you and to worship you. I pray that during this week that those in this church and those watching online that uh, we will go out and live in this world, but through your guidance and looking to you, we don't live of the world. And all that we do, we glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen.